You're listening to Green Mountain Medicine, an original podcast series by ACP Vermont for all things internal medicine. I'm Matt. I'm Dylan. And we're your hosts on tonight's show. This series aims to unpack the complexity of medicine in a nuanced and evidence-based way. And if that sounds like something you would enjoy, then we are happy you could join us. For the next half hour, we invite you to relax, grab some coffee, and engage with us as we deconstruct the topics that impact our field and characterize our practice. Is this on? Oh, I guess so. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our first episode. I'm Matt, as you already heard from our intro. I'm Dylan. And it's our pleasure today to uh, start us off with a topic that I think is fresh in the hearts of medical students across the country. And that is, uh, what do we do with the USMLE Step 1? Yeah, uh, there's there's a, a debate going on right now about the utility of using a numeric score scale uh, when it comes to evaluating students, um, you know, for licensure and then for competitiveness in residency application. And uh, this debate really picked up. We kind of learned about this debate uh, a couple months ago when we were discussing with our chapter council about a, a resolution that was going to maybe get looked at at the ACP national meeting about the stance that you know we wanted to take on on this topic. So so Matt and I decided to do a little uh, looking on our own, and we found out that there there actually USMLE kind of congregated uh, a bunch of the major stakeholders in this exam uh, for a meeting last uh, in March uh, about what they how they're going to address this issue of a lot of uh, students feeling that the expectations for this exam were, were too high and we're putting too much um, pressure on, on them uh, and coupled with uh, a lot of medical educators feeling frustrated that students are, uh, are not really uh, invested in their preclinical education and are instead focusing more on, on the few resources that have kind of been tried and true for, for high scores on the test. Um, but then the other side of this issue being being that uh, a lot of residency um, directors and, and evaluators, uh, they really rely on the step one score to provide a means of, of objective data to compare applicants coming from all different, uh, you know, different schools, different programs, uh, and just with the increasing number of applications that they're getting each year, having some kind of benchmark to uh, help with that sorting process, because as we know, we want to do as thorough of an evaluation on each on each applicant as we can, but uh, that can be kind of hard if, if everything is, is kind of left to subjective interpretation, and, and the use of, of objective measurables is, is of value. So, we uh, we found the results that that were published about this meeting uh, back in March, and uh, Matt and I were going to kind of pair off talking about the uh, the pros and cons of each. But uh, before that, I think Matt had some some insight on on ACP's particular stance on this issue. Yeah, so uh, just like Dylan was saying, you know, well, this is sort of a a uh, very controversial and dividing point within the medical student community. Um, within the medical community, because there's, on one hand, a pressure to use the, the test as a, as a um, predictor of future performance and as a marker of um, 
for good, potentially good resident application applicants. But on the other hand, uh, it seems to be sort of a a uh, increasingly distressing stressor for medical students, uh, and that has sort of prompted uh, a lot of opinions within um, medical organizations. So for the ACP's role, the American College of Physicians, uh, they actually have um, brought up a resolution. The uh, DC chapter brought up a resolution uh, for discussion among their board, the board of governors, uh, basically requesting a reevaluation of the role of step one uh, among residency applications. <clears throat> and I can read very quickly from this resolution. It's titled Resolution 16-S19. Uh, essentially, what it's asking for, uh, it states, resolve that the Board of Regents adopts policy opposing using the Step 1 exam as a strict criterion for residency applications, and that such policy emphasizes clinical performance, problem-solving, and resourcefulness over performance on a standardized exam when evaluating candidates for residency programs. And, be it further resolved, that the Board of Regents will encourage residency programs to adopt the above policy and assess applicants more globally instead of using step one scores to screen out otherwise well-qualified applicants for interviews and matching. And I think, I mean, I think you might agree with me, Dylan, that this is sort of uh, a very, you know, holistic uh, statement. And so there's not really anything that people might disagree with that. Of course, step one should be taken into account among with other factors for residency applications. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the sort of critical factor here is that uh, this is prompting ACP to take a stance on this issue and to try and push the pendulum uh, towards a national conversation about how we look at USMLE Step 1. And, you know, that might lead to interpret new interpretations down the road for how scores are reported, whether they're, you know, numerical or um, reported on a quartile range um, or something like a pass-fail system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, um, so... You know, getting into that debate, uh, there's actually a lot of different pros and cons uh, over this discussion. And I think over the next few minutes or so, we'll try and break down the arguments for or against uh, the USMLE Step 1, specifically whether it should be reported as numeric, as a numeric score or if, it, if a pass-fail system or something like that would be a better alternative. Right. So uh, kind of... Actually, that really being the um, the crux of the issue here, it, one of the, the major uh, dividing points that came out of the, the conference that was called, uh, it's the, the Inva- Invitational Conference on USMLE Scoring, or INCAS. Uh, one of the, the first uh, divisions was that uh, the importance of using the numeric score as an objective assessment of uh the competencies needed for uh, medical school graduates to enter enter a training program, uh, whereas the the kind of the, the converse side of that was that um, if you approach the step one kind of like the the bar exam for law students, where it it will as long as you hit a passing score, you you know you, you establish a, a a level of competency that everyone needs to hit, and that there's no real Differentiation between the competency needed for uh, any of the different me- like medical specialties. Uh, now, uh, for the pro side of this issue, we know that 
uh, increasingly medical students are doing more and more to be competitive for a lot of the um, highly sought after medical specialties, um, you know, that we all know and love, like, you know, surgical subspecialties or dermatology, uh, and that when it, if it came down to uh, subjective assessments alone, um, there is a lot of room for interpretation, uh, especially, and you might run into uh, issues of different residency programs only trusting uh, like input from certain schools that they're familiar with and maybe not giving as much uh, credence to a student coming from a maybe a, a lesser uh, or maybe like a lower ranked school who really has earned all of their um, you know their their status um, that person just might not show up without uh, and also like a, a more kind of objective number that that all uh, residency directors from around the country can all be familiar with. And by just reporting a, a passing score, uh, it's a little bit harder to delineate, um, you know, how much uh, more work someone might have put into trying to achieve a really high score that could then also be reflective of their other capacities for, for you know, undertaking the extra responsibility that will make them the best, uh, you know, resident and, and translating that into uh, a later attending. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think that that's one side for, that's one way to look at it for the, this is use this, the score is usefulness as, as an objective measure that, that then, so it does take away, uh, you know, worries about, about program familiarity or favoritism or, or giving, um, residency directors something to look at that, uh, is not just, um, you know, maybe the strength of a, of a, letter of recommendation, which, you know, can often just be, it can be subject to bias in a lot of different ways. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's, that seems, that's a fair point, And I can definitely sympathize, you know, I think with uh, program directors who are receiving thousands of applications and have a very limited number of, of you know, numbers, essentially, or a limited number of data to make a decision for who to invite. Right, and you can only say you can only invite even if you can only invite ten percent, thousand applicants. That is still a ton to weed to weed through. But I, you know, the thing that bothers me about this conversation and that argument particularly is that it seems like they, the argument kind of uh, loses sight of a bigger question, and that is, what is the merit of the USMLE step one? Like, like why is yeah, like why is it this number that's so important versus some other kind of objective thing that maybe we don't even have yet, but why is, why does this test have to be that one number? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think, you know, we have to take a step back and, and think about whether this exam is really all that, you know, it, all that it appears to be, um, you know, given all the sort of hype and stress that kind of goes into preparing for it. You know, and it's interesting. The USMLE was initially designed to be a measure of minimum competency, right? This idea that if you passed it, uh, it was a measure that you had as a as an applicant and a test taker, 
had demonstrated sufficient competency in the basic sciences in order to progress to the clerkship and clinical level of the curriculum. Right. Actually, if you look on, on the website, that it even states that the, the primary intention of the USMLE is still, is still that. It's still a pass-fail measure. And just the issue that has come up is that it's taken on this whole new meaning to residency you know, directors, residency program directors, that is now basically kind of folded into its official use, but technically speaking is actually a, a secondary extension of what the test was primarily meant to do. Yeah, no, and I think that's something that um, is worth a little bit of discussion, you know, from our perspective yeah. as medical students, uh, kind of wading through this kind of hullabaloo of an examination. We The, the data for USMLE Step 1 isn't very clear. Uh, in terms of what it really predicts or how powerful a marker it is of success in residency or further. And, you know, we've looked at a few, few articles in the medical literature, and from what we can see, it seems like USMLE Step 1 has a fairly um, strong correlation with, uh, with performance on future standardized exams, which I think is a no-brainer, right? They are pretty, it is pretty <clears throat> inevitable. Yeah. Yeah, I think it makes sense. If you, if you do really well on step one, uh, might imply that you have, in addition to some, to crazy intelligence, uh, you know, a very strong grasp on test taking skills. And, and so future standardized examinations probably might be, uh, might go better for you than people who fail at the exam the first time. <clears throat> but that doesn't sort of answer the question that I think residency program directors really want to want really want answered and that is well how does that translate to performance in the clinic right right okay so right so scores so so is this number um actually going to reflect scores in the or performance in the clinic and and i think from the literature you were showing me matt it's it's in some specialties maybe but for the most part no but maybe we we should we should make Note that there was actually a, a study that came out um, last year uh, in the journal Academic Radiology that that did talk about. They actually um, looked at uh, different kind of objective uh, measure, like objective measures, and then they were looking at um, their group of uh, 27 residents at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center um, in in their radiology program, and they were looking at how often the uh, the diagnosis made by these these residents um, was discordant with the the final interpretation by the attending. Is this is some kind of uh, measurement of you know how how well prepared um, were these uh, residents to you know to make these diagnoses and is there any kind of association with how well they might have you know done in medical school that then predicted how how good or bad their their discordance rates might be, and they did find a uh, statistically significant uh, relationship between, um, I guess, higher uh, or lower lower discordance and higher step one score. Step one actually, um, it was step one. It was publication of a medical research before residency and um, election into an honor society. Like the AOA, that all these things, if the if the resident had these features, they were less likely 
to um, end up making a, a discordant diagnosis, um, which the article defined as being um, you know different from what the attending the final uh, call by the attending physician and different significantly different in that it would have changed how management was performed for that patient. So you know this is just one study. And it's only on, you know, we only have a small group of residents, 27 residents that this looked at. But there is, um, I mean, this is hard data stating that we do have um, some association between some of these kind of uh, markers of, of academic achievement um, and then performance in the clinic. Right. And, and, you know, and that, that's an interesting study, actually, in particular, because of the field that it takes place in, right? Like diagnostic radiology is a field where the current the current average step one score for a matched U.S. senior is a 240, which is fairly high. Um, I think the, the national average is in the 220s right now, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you know something to think about, that this field and these, these residents are already among, in terms of their step one score, um, the top percentiles of uh, the medical student community. Um, but, you know, it's interesting because I, I wonder how translatable that, that data is um, among that entire field and among other specialties. You know, certainly radiology uh, radiology and, and sort of the uh, skills required to be a good radiologist um, rely heavily on image interpretation, uh, whereas we have other fields that rely more on history taking and things that might not be measured as well with standardized examinations. And that's a that's an interesting point too. That there have been other studies, parallel studies, that have looked at other predictors of step one performance, and they found that at least in the clerkship level, there is a poor correlation between step one scores and faculty evaluations. Or at least there is a study that came out. I'm looking at just this year, um, where they looked at how medical students performed on their surgery clerkship after getting their step one uh, step one scores. And while it's interesting, they, they had um, the higher step one score was associated with a higher grade in the clerkship, but it did not correlate with the clinical evaluation. So presumably the, the, the difference there is that um, potentially step one score, higher step one scores might have been associated with higher shelf score examinations. And a lot of um, surgery de- uh, departments are kind of implementing a, a cutoff score for uh, further shelf exam in order to earn uh, an honors grade, but um, even then, like if if then we're kind of falling back into the same uh, paradigm where you know good test good test taking begets good test taking. So that was uh, just something else to keep in mind that yeah you, you have to be sure to break this this data down in the right way to to kind of get more of the crux of the issue and be wary of, yeah, maybe a, a clerkship grade might be higher, but that could just be in reference to the standardized exam you take at the end of that, as opposed to clinical evaluations, which is uh, often a bigger predictor of how um, students will do once they graduate. That was a great line right there. Good test taking begets good test taking. I'm going to write that down. Yeah, thanks, man. Uh, that was a... Uh, I've been I've been working on that one for a while. No, just <laughs> yeah, it's intact on your refrigerator. Yeah, door. exactly. Um, all right. Well, moving on. <laughs> There's other components to this argument, you know, and 
definitely the merit of step one in terms of predicting performance in the future is one part. But, um, you know, the other half of the argument really is centered in the here and now. And that is, what is the impact of this exam and the, uh, and the implications that this exam has in the current climate on medical student well-being? And this is something that has been, you know, it's not, it's not studied as well. Um, and it's very much a self-reported, sort of a self-reported uh, phenomenon. But there's a, concept, there's a concept here kind of referred to informally as the step one climate. Mm-hmm. And as medical students, you know, we can kind of share our perspective here at, within our medical school, the Lerner College of Medicine, the University of Vermont. Uh, you can feel free to chime in with me. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, but you know this uh, this concept of the step one climate uh, is sort of a sort of an impending doom and gloom um, mood towards the step one examination because of the implications uh, and the sort of the assumption that medical students seem to be making uh, with good reason that the step one score essentially makes or breaks someone for the residency applications, uh, and that's that's sort of uh, you know indirectly supplemented by uh, statistics, because if you look at the match, um, the mean USMLE Step 1 scores across different specialties uh, for match seniors, they differ widely. And you have, for example, um, people in anesthesiology with a mean match that's in the low 230s uh, compared to, we could say, um, neurosurgery with the mean match, with a mean score of 250 or so, right? right? And that's... Um, in the interpretation of for medical students looking at that data and anecdotally is that if they do not score well enough, that that score essentially excludes or narrows their career path for right. them. Right. Now, we've heard from our associate dean for students that they, they there are ways, and we've heard testimonials from students as well, there are ways to... Uh, get around this if if someone gets a numeric score that uh, is maybe not in line with the average of uh, accepted uh, students into that discipline, but they they do usually give the caveat of that it can be a lot more work. It can often require taking an extra year of research adding on to your medical education. Um, and for I think for a lot of students, even even knowing that there's there's recourse, but that knowing that the recourse can be extremely uh, difficult, uh, can produce a lot of stress, and just uh, it can fo- it can cause them to uh, get so focused on this one exam that they might not actually uh, give themselves give themselves time to do other things that could make them strong applicants in that field. And actually, one of the things that came up during that the, the INCUS meeting as a, a major uh, con for using the numeric scores is uh, actually the opportunity cost of um, dedicating so much time to uh, step one studying that they that students lose out on chances to get involved in research or into volunteer programs they might be um, they might be passionate about. And I don't know Matt, like I know like when I talk to um, attendings or mentors about, you know, how to kind of best sell myself as a, as a medical student, they oftentimes say that if you have something that you do in medical education that you're passionate about and you can talk about that, that really speaks to a lot of residency program directors. But I don't think any residency program director wants to hear how passionate you are about studying for step one. 
No, I yeah. mean, that's a, I totally agree, you know. Um, but, you know, from the perspective of the student, uh, it's kind of like a, a give and take, right? Like you, on one hand, you can definitely invest so much into your interest in research or uh, developing your specialty interests. But if there, if there continues to be sort of a cutoff screening method for residency applications, um, then it might go to say that however great your interests are, if you don't meet that cutoff for your step one, your application won't get really evaluated very much. Um, but, you know, this, it's an interesting point. And going back to this kind of concept of, like, the step one climate, um, you know, one of the other arguments against, uh, or I guess for the step one, uh, retaining a numerical score is that, you know, that's essentially that stress might be uh, unavoidable and that stress might be a good a positive motivator for student performance. In other words, uh, people are making the argument that if they keep step one as a numerical score, students would be more motivated to um, really pursue their education more deeply, as opposed to maybe a pass-fail system that might invite a little too much uh, lax. Uh, it's interesting because that's uh, that's something that, that's a parallel conversation going on right now among medical schools with the pre, pre-clinical course curricula, where you have medical schools now opting to switch from a tiered grading system, uh, essentially that one that, that awards the grade of fail, pass, or honors, or a high pass, um, essentially, and kind of distinguishes students who are more exceptional uh, or, or having more exceptionally high academic scores. Uh, and now there's a switch among medical schools now to, to adopt a simple pass-fail system, sort of with the rationale that this might promote uh, improved student wellness. And that's what we've been doing here at the Larner College of Medicine. Uh, since we started uh, our education, I think it took place in 2017 was the first, or maybe 2016 was the first year that yeah, they had that so. passed. Yeah, and so it, it's interesting to see for us, you know, as students, we don't really notice the change. Um, I think the year above us actually um, experienced the switch from pass, mm-hmm. from tiered grading to pass-fail within their second year. <clears throat> It can be interesting to see their perspective, actually. Um, we don't have them with us today, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but we do have some data. And we won't speak for them, them, but we'll, we, can, uh, we can only speculate how they, how they feel about it right at this moment. <clears throat> right. Um, but we do, so we do have some data from other institutions, and this is one that I'll, I'll mention briefly. Uh, it's an article and study done by the University of Virginia School of Medicine. It came out in the, in the, two, in the 2009 edition of Academic Medicine, and it's entitled, A Change to Pass-Fail Grading in the First Two Years at One Medical School Results in Improved Psychological Well-Being. And essentially, they looked at about five years' worth of data, um, specifically focused at the, on the academic scores of their students within the first three semesters of their, of their curriculum. And they report that ever since the switch to pass-fail grading, students have reported uh, an improved sense of well-being, improved satisfaction with personal life, and it improves satisfaction with the quality of medical education. And here's the kicker, with no measurable changes in their USMLE scores, um, other forms of academic performance, or class attendance, even. Um, and that's interesting. I think that's something that has never... It's, it's an informal fear among faculty here, at least at mm-hmm. our medical school, that if they switch to a pass-fail system or if they... Um, you know, they are not pushing students hard enough that students might lose interest and just stop coming to class altogether. But it, it really, I guess it really doesn't change. And, you know, that was one thing that 
you know, Matt and I have served as student ambassadors uh, for the school, and that one of the de- uh, duties of that is uh, going to interview days and telling new stu- uh, prospective students about, well, you know, what to expect at the Larner College of Medicine. And a lot of them always ask, like, well, pass fail, does that mean that you, you know, you don't have to try as hard or that you don't, you know, you feel like you don't get um, the same quality of education um, that you might otherwise kind of force yourself into if uh, it was on a tiered grading scale. But I think, you know, from, from personal experience and from talking with some classmates, I, I don't I don't think that's true. I think that, I don't know, as, as people who are devoting themselves to medicine and who, who realize that they're signing themselves up for a very uh, demanding job that requires a lot of uh, intelligence and hard work and preparation to, to do well. And I think we realize that that phoning it in now is not, not going to help us in the long run. And that, uh, and I think also just the types of people, and we all know the types of people that medical students are, um, <laughs> Uh, that there's almost like a, a little bit of a, of a neuroticism in a good way about, uh, you know, not getting, not getting left behind, not, not leaving things out in your medical education because of how that could one day affect the patient that you're working with. So, so yeah, so I think, you know, in the, in the two years of having a pass fail curriculum here that we've gone through, I'd say, uh, if anything, there's there's been no less motivation to you know perform up to uh, you know a standards that we set for ourselves, but with the the added benefit being that it it does take away some of the um, the gunnerness, the cutthroatness of of medical education, and does provide for um, better teamwork that probably speaks to a lot of that benefit they saw in that Virginia study of of you know better. Um, student wellness and and camaraderie yeah i think that's absolutely in the minds of people that are pushing for this sort of pass fail switch for the usmla that they um i think one of the motivations for that definitely is that it might facilitate a more uh, more healthy environment among medical students especially in a time and place where um, the medical community is experiencing record levels of burnout Mm. you know not to mention um, our, our field specifically internal medicine um, there's huge rates of burnout among hospitals, and and that's something that we should kind of keep in consideration: is how early are we exposing medical students? Um, which I think I think essentially, you know, are the are sort of the weakest components of um, the med school hierarchy, right? The most vulnerable, definitely. Most vulnerable, yeah, yeah. I'd agree. Yeah, especially yeah, getting <clears throat> off on that precedent early is is not a good place to start. I mean, we uh we went to the the chapter meeting uh, back in October, and there was a whole session dedicated to talking about um, dealing with physician burnout. And and from what I remember of you know that talk, it just that there was a lot of of emphasis on recognizing this is a real problem, and it does come in at all levels. So, is this probably step one? Probably being one of the biggest <laughs> sources of medical student burnout. I think that's it's good. It's good that we're trying to have this conversation, you know, sooner rather than later. Right. Absolutely. You know. Um, <clears throat> now, to moving on to a sort of other components and other arguments for this, it seems like you know we definitely have to acknowledge that medical students, despite us being the test takers uh, 
in this relationship with the USMLE. We're not the only stakeholders in, in this. Very true. Right? Um, so we've talked a little bit about how program directors are involved and from their perspective of using step one and how they, how without it, they might be, um, you know, they might face residency applications with greater difficulty in terms of identifying good candidates to interview. Um, but one other huge stakeholder that I think we, we can't afford to miss, um, are the medical schools and, um, and all the effort and faculty that, uh, that are involved in developing unique educational curricula, um, for each medical school. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is something that I think is, again, also more anecdotal, um, but is a complaint across medical schools um, within the United States. And that is that with the U.S. MOE and the emphasis on that exam, um, there is now a greater emphasis among students to, to focus solely on, quote unquote, high yield or testable topics um, and while ignoring essentially the curriculum and uh, of their own medical school, especially when topics don't align with um, with the resources that they use for test preparation. Yeah, it's a challenge to you know figure out how if if we think that student right now students are kind of going to engage with the uh, the kind of classic step one study resources on their own anyway. Um, then what you know what more or what different perspective should medical educators be providing um, during the preclinical years? And I mean, I don't know. It's I think that uh, one benefit that, that we've had here is that we have had a chunk of the curriculum, preclinical curriculum, focused on kind of getting ready for patient encounters. We have a pretty rich clinical skills um, curriculum here that I think help make us a little more comfortable uh once after taking step one and getting into our first clerkships. Um, but yeah, you know, where, whereas the knowledge can be, you know, often gained from our, you know, the, the 40 minute videos that we can find online or, um, those again, I guess like the, the classic textbooks that, that we all kind of know and love. Um, you know, I, I think a big thing, uh, that can really only be taught by practicing physicians is, is more thoughts on like clinical decision making and like in management. I think that's where these, the case based approach has taken, uh, on more of a role, uh, in that oftentimes the way that we can go through, um, we can go through a case and kind of follow it down two different paths if we, if we decide to do, do two different things. The, the, um, the flip side to that, though, is that, you know, to make those decisions, you need a really strong fund of knowledge. And maybe, you know, I remember for us, we were getting a lot of, uh, a lot of pre-reading before, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, before sessions that, you know, would feel, uh, almost insurmountable. And then we'd, we'd come to the, uh, the session with kind of a chip on our shoulder. Like they put me, made me do all this work. Now I don't want to, uh, participate because I'm, tired from doing all the, the 40 pages of reading. Um, so I don't know. So maybe medical, maybe the curriculum should, should not try to double down on, um, educating us on the, the, the basic science fund of knowledge and really just, you know, leave it up to us to like more completely to focus on, uh, 
doing that on our own and then using the time in, cl- in class to focus on more on like on decision making and and making choices that uh you know can be like requiring us to evaluate evidence and and make kind of real time choices no i think i mean in an ideal world we would want a balance right but um i think that's sort of the the dilemma that we find the medical schools at least find themselves in right now and that is that you know if their students are so preoccupied with scoring well on step 1 which is essentially a basic science and knowledge based exam uh there is they they face this problem where they're they they have students now that are disinterested in their curricula yeah right and it's it's interesting also how um, how commercialized medical education is becoming as a result because of this high demand for step 1 resources and a focus on um we're kind of like putting putting uh, passing and higher scores of step one on this pedestal. We we're seeing the emergence of third party resources, things like UWorld, Pathoma. Um, these are for our listeners who aren't aware. These are um, these are pers- these are resources on the market, video series or um, question tools. banks. Yeah, question banks um, that are third party. They're commercialized uh, for sale, uh, and they. They're essentially marketed as tools that will assist students in achieving a higher score. But what, what's happened is that students are now really just focused on using those resources yeah. as their only resources. One thing I've heard from a lot of, or from some peers, is that you know they raise the question, why am I paying X ten, you know, ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a semester for medical education if I'm then going to turn around and spend the you know Five hundred to a thousand dollars on these kind of core step one review materials that are ultimately what you know they felt is what gave them the key to their to their exam score, and there, there's definitely a, some frustration there on you know the the financial cost put into these things, and um, you know maybe you know why why aren't these things being provided for us by the schools if it seems like that's the the stuff that everyone's using and we're paying. You know, high tuition as it is, like how you know, how do we, uh, you know, compensate for that? Yeah, it's yeah. The question on my mind right now is, you know, does is the U.S. Emily Step One rendering kind of medical school curriculum less effective, right? And if that's the case, then uh, are medical schools really all that different now if everyone's using the same resources to obtain? You know, this essentially the same knowledge base. Yeah, at least at the preclinical level, I, I actually I tend to agree in that um, it is. It does seem that I think even over the course of you know my our two years uh, in the pre in the preclinical curriculum, like, I think we saw less of an interest in attending class, less motivation to really engage with the. Um, the lesson material that we got from our from our professors, and for, which is really too bad, because I think a lot of them uh, spent an incredible amount of time trying to develop really the best learning resources in order to to compete with the third party resources. But like, is that even something they should have to do? Like that that just almost sounds like like if if we're if we're asking them to change all their resources and their lesson plans to our kind of mold, but then not going to their classes anyway. I mean, that 
we've seen a lot of frustration come out of our the, our professors on that end. Yeah, absolutely, and and with good reason, you know. Um, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> and it's something that, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know how we can get around that. I do think one thing I've seen um, that it I kind of think about is uh, is changing the the emphasis. Um, if you move it away from step one and put it more on to step two clinical knowledge, which is a similar format exam, uh, the questions tend to be a little bit more management focused, but still require, um, you know, a good fund of medical knowledge to answer correctly. And with the, um, you know, with the fact that most students take this exam after their core clinical clerkships so that they've they're usually incorporating things that they learned on the wards in addition to all the things they learned in the classroom uh, to taking this exam. And, and I actually, I have to, should probably check if there was any recommendations about making this switch from, from the Incas conference, but I don't know. That, that, that kind of seems like a little bit better if you have to use some kind of objective benchmark. Um, that one seems like a little bit uh, more relevant, because especially because it's closer in time to the uh, the actual date of a lot of students' applications, um, and can usually be a little bit more focused on how they're actually applying clinical knowledge uh, or knowledge into clinical scenarios, as opposed to just really amassing such a, a very wide um, range of clinical knowledge that may or may not ultimately apply to their practice and may or may not be correlated at all with how well they do when they go off to their internship. No, yeah, I think that's that's an interesting point. You know, maybe we need to, maybe it isn't a, a matter of uh, USMLA as a whole, but maybe it's just a matter of focusing more on step two than step one. Um, although, you know, I wonder whether that would mitigate any of these um, more social issues, right, with student well-being and burnout it could just be transferring the issue to a little bit later in uh the, the medical students educational path that's very true right and that's something that i think you know definitely warrants further consideration um that's a great conversation there's i think one final component that uh, some some in the uh, medical community have brought up and that is that there is a i guess relatively minor but still substantial financial cost mm. Um, to preparation for the step one, essentially because people are using the same resources, the you know the tried and true, so to speak, resources for step one preparation, um, it puts students who are not able to afford you know a five hundred dollar question bank or a uh, two hundred fifty dollar online video series uh, at a unique disadvantage. Absolutely, and and that was actually that was a major. Um... Uh, con that came out of of Incas as well as they they mentioned how um, there is maybe as is uh, minority underserved students who often are suffering the most from this uh, numeric score because of I think of those those types of issues um, you know people who are underrepresented and uh, may have likely had to work harder than people some of their fellow students that have. Kind of the resources to support, uh, better support their education, 
um, and are now just to get into medical school and now are here, um, you know, trying to succeed, but um, just unable to to utilize these kind of core resources that everyone else is is you are using and and are claiming that you know is the recipe for success. I remember when we they we we sat down with students from the year above us and they said you know in order to do well in step one you need you know X Y and Z all these these different things that we have to pay for. Um, and right if if you know those hadn't been available. I don't know what I would have done. It would have been a lot, a, little, a lot more challenging. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and this is just us, you know, pe- passing ideas back and forth. Um, definitely, this conversation is much bigger than the two of us. Um, but to give you all, our listeners, sort of an update on where this conversation is going. Uh, so the the conference that we keep referencing, the Invitational Conference on USMLE scoring, they. Um, their plans are to announce their preliminary recommendations sometime in June of this year. No, next month. Yeah, so really shortly, actually. And after they announce these recommendations, they'll uh, follow it with about six weeks of um, a six week period for open commentary, in which they'll invite members of uh, medical, stu- medical student communities and um, all the other stakeholders of the USMLE to kind of weigh in on what, on what they think whether USMLE should be passed fail or not, um, how we how we move forward with this uh, to in a way that kind of meets the demands and needs of all the parties that are involved. And as far as the ACP meeting and their resolution, uh, that was brought up at the Board of Governors meeting, I believe in April. Mm-hmm. And they have yet to, re- to announce their recommendation on that, but we'll keep you up to date. We figure that they, they'll probably coordinate with this um Inca's uh, release of their recommendation to try to make their, um, you know, their opinion, they incorporate their opinion into the overall um, USMLE decision making. So that'll be um, something to follow up on in the in the coming weeks for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, this is uh this is our first podcast, I think, right? Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, this I, is the first I one. Doing another so. one. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we hope you uh, hope you all enjoyed it, and I know I don't, we enjoyed it. This was something that we I talked a lot about doing, and then I think the moments before we hit the record button, we were like, "What are we getting ourselves into?" But you know, you, we tried our best to keep the conversation flowing and hope that uh, things make sense. So yeah, that's it for today on Green Mountain Medicine. I'm Matt Sai, and I'm Dylan Conduction. And thanks for tuning in. If you found our discussion enjoyable, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACP underscore Vermont for more podcast updates.